Well, today we are starting, oh, by the way, my name is Dave Heinrichs, in case you didn't know, I'm one of the pastors here, so it's great to be together this morning. Today we are starting a new series in the book of Daniel, and I've told some people that, and they're like, well, why the book of Daniel? And uh, I think the main reason that I have felt uh, taking us through a series in this book is that in some ways, we can actually feel like we are living in a similar situation that Daniel and his friends find themselves in, in this book. They have been taken away from their home in Judah, and they are now living as exiles in Babylon, a foreign land that is not only hostile to their religion, but is doing everything within its power to pressure them into giving up their Jewish identity and just to assimilate into the surrounding culture. And though most of us have never been exiled, we may also find some similarity between our circumstances in theirs. Like we are living in a land that is foreign to the way of Jesus, even hostile uh, at times to our faith. Like Daniel and his friends, it can feel like our society is pressuring us into giving up our Christian identity in order to just assimilate into the surrounding culture. And this pressure can tempt us into several different responses as it has Christians throughout the ages. For some, they just despair. Others, they have isolated themselves, right, into closed communities in order for some self-preservation. When others have faced this kind of pressure, some Christians have compromised and capitulated, while others have decided to wage war on the culture. But I think the book of Daniel gives us a vision for how we can live faithfully despite feeling like we're in exile. And chapter 1, it sets the trajectory for this whole book, right? It tells us that despite how it may feel, God is still in charge, that the difficult circumstances we face, they are not out of control, but are a part of his good purposes, and someday he will deliver us. But in the meantime, God will also provide us with what we need to maintain our loyalty to him. And in Daniel 1, it shows us that it's God's sovereignty that enables faithful living. So if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open them up to Daniel chapter 1. It's going to be on the screen as well, but we're going to be in the text a lot this morning. Let me pray before we read God's word. So Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you so much for already all that we've been able to to do as we've gathered here. How encouraging it's been for my heart and soul as we've worshipped you, as we've prayed together. We just thank you, Lord, for our church family. We ask you now that you would open up our hearts and minds to your words, and that may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. 
The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of the Lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. And at the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the other young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. And at the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them. He found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Well, in this very beginning of this passage, we see who the main character and uh, player of this book is. And it is not Daniel. Verse 1 and 2 says, says that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, and the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. You see, Daniel and his friends, they play vital roles in this book. And there are even several kings like Nebuchadnezzar who have a part in the story too. But ultimately, the most important role in the story and the one who we should be paying closest attention to throughout this book is God. Often when we hear stories from the Bible, particularly when we hear accounts from the book of Daniel, those, especially those first six chapters, the focus is on Daniel and on his friends and how we should be like them, right? Don't be afraid of lions, right? Step into a furnace, and certainly there's lots to admire and emulate in these young Israelites, but the book is not centered on them. Rather, it's focused on the sovereignty of God over all of life and history and how this should encourage us to live faithfully for him despite the difficult circumstances that we might find ourselves in. And in these first two verses, we see that even the exile that Daniel and company experienced was ultimately determined by God. From a human perspective, it appears that Nebuchadnezzar is in charge and that Babylon holds all the power. But verse 2 says that it was the Lord who delivered 
Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. Why? Why would God deliver his people into his enemy's hands? The chapter doesn't tell us. However, later on in Daniel chapter 9, we will find out that Daniel says that this disaster took place because of the people of Judah's sin. Way back in Deuteronomy chapter 8, God tells the Israelites that if they will live according to his ways, not like the other nations, then he would keep them and bless them in the land. However, he says to them, if Israel chose not to partner with God, if they decided instead to live in rebellion like the nations who inhabited the land before them and those who lived around them, then God would do to Israel the same thing he did to those other nations. In Deuteronomy 28.15, he says, If you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees that I'm giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. And then in verse 64, it says, One of these curses is that the Lord will scatter you among all the nations from one end of the earth to the other. So ultimately, it is God who is responsible for their exile. Now hearing that God is sovereign, not only over our prospering, but also over our suffering, this can be very difficult for us to reconcile. This is what have caused many people to doubt God, doubt that God could be all-powerful, or if he, if he is, then they doubt that he could be, you know, all good. And so this is why when we talk about God's sovereignty, his ultimate rule over everything. This is why we also need to understand what theologians call providence. Providence is the understanding that when God created the world, he didn't just step back and allow it to run on its own. He didn't leave it to chance. He didn't even leave it up to human will and desire. Rather, God, when he created it, he entered into a relationship with what he had made, and he continues to govern it all. He is moving things so that everything eventually turns out according to his good purposes. The Bible says that God has all power and all authority, that he is sovereign over everything, including the troubling situation Daniel and his friends find themselves in, including your troubles and mine too. Lamentations 3.38 says, Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come. See, this doesn't mean that God created or our troubles or that he caused evil. No, the Bible is clear about that, that Satan is the author of evil and that he opposes God and that we humans, we have free will and that we are responsible for the decisions and the actions that we take. My friend Barton Preeb, he's helped me to understand this doctrine of providence. He says that it is like juggling three balls, and in order to understand it correctly, we cannot drop any of these three. First is that God is ordaining all events. That's the first ball. The second is that he is not the author of evil, but that God is good and holy. And the third one that we need to maintain is that we still have free will and that we are morally accountable. And he goes on to explain that holding all three of these together, this is called concurrence, right? And just as there can be many currents in a river that are going in seemingly different directions, ultimately there is one river 
and it is all heading in the same direction, exactly where God wants it to go. For me, it's been the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis that has helped me to really understand uh, God's providence and how it works out. If you know the story of Joseph as a young man, he ticks his brothers off, they're jealous of him, they sell him into slavery, and he ends up in Egypt. And then the question for us is, who is responsible for the trouble that Joseph finds himself in? Is it his is it his own fault for being so arrogant? Is it, his, is it his brothers who sell him into slavery? Is it Satan who loves to enslave people? Or is it the slave traders who take him? It's all of them, isn't it? It is. But look at what Joseph says when he confronts his brothers years later in Genesis chapter 47. He says, don't be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been a famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will be no plowing or reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. This, this clearly shows the providence of God, the sovereignty of God in action, how he is using all things for his good purposes and our welfare. Here's the thing. From our perspective, when we are in the midst of a difficult situation like the one Daniel finds himself in, we often can't see anything that helps us to make sense of what is going wrong in our lives. And this can leave us feeling helpless and we're even tempted just to, to lose hope. But this doctrine of providence, believing that God is still in control and trusting that he is using all of our circumstances towards his good purposes and our well-being, this can give meaning to our suffering. It gives us hope and it can help us to persevere and continue to trust him. That God's sovereignty enables faithful living. Romans 8.28 says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And I think that Daniel and his friends know that God hasn't abandoned them, that he was the one who brought them to Babylon, but he'll also see them through by enabling them to remain loyal to him. In verses 3 to 7 of this story, they tell us how Nebuchadnezzar, he had the chief of his court officials round up the best and brightest of the young men of Israel to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians and to give them food and wine from the king's table and that after three years of training, then they were to enter his service. And this includes Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Theologian Tremper Longman, he says that Nebuchadnezzar's purpose in all of this, in training these foreign youth, was to indoctrinate them into uh, the Babylonian ways for political and propaganda purposes. The hope was that they might become enamored with the Babylonian ways and customs and either return to positions of influence back in their home country or to stay in Babylon in important positions. And ultimately, by removing these youth from their homes and the educational, cultural, and spiritual influences of their families, Nebuchadnezzar is trying to expand the reach and influence of his kingdom by assimilating them into Babylonian life. For me, when I was reading this, I couldn't 
help but see how eerily similar the tactics of Babylon are to the Indian residential schools that we had here in Canada, which were also established to assimilate First Nations youth by replacing their traditional values with Canadian values by removing them from their homes in order to expand Canadian influence. They even both went as far as changing these young people's names. Now on the surface, having our names changed may seem insignificant to us, right? In our culture, our, our name and our identity are only mildly associated with one another. However, in other cultures such as the ancient Near East, names which often contain the names of one, one's God were integrally connected with a person's identity. Like, look at the names of these four young Israelites. Daniel, his name means God is my judge. Azariah, Yahweh is my help. Hananiah means God has been gracious. And Mishael means who is like God. But in their attempt to give these Judean youth a new identity and allegiance in, in the Babylonians then bestowed new names on them that were now associated with Babylonian gods. Daniel's name becomes Belteshazzar, which means goddess, protect the king. Azariah becomes Abednego, which means servant of Nabu. That's another Babylonian god. It's unclear what Meshach means, but Shadrach is a form of the Babylonian god Marduk. Giving them names wasn't just about this new identity. It also had everything to do with having power over them. If you recall, back in Genesis chapter 2, God has the first humans in the garden and he brings before them all the animals and they are to give all the animals names, right? But this was more than just helping them to identify the animals. This was also establishing human authority over creation, right? And so if you gave someone a name or if you changed someone's name and gave them a new one, it's like you owned them. These young Judeans, they receive new names, new clothes, new food, new language, new customs. Babylon is doing everything within its power to pressure them into giving up their Jewish identity and just assimilate into the surrounding culture. The pressure to give in and to compromise for Daniel and his friends must have been overwhelming. Some commentators think that these guys could have been as young as 14 years old when they entered this service. Who could blame them for succumbing to such intense coercion? Intense coercion. How would they be able to maintain their loyalty to Yahweh in such conditions? I think it is the sovereignty of God that enables them to live faithfully. In verse 8, it says that Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the king's food and wine. I love that. He resolved, right? He was determined. Daniel was insistent, committed to not defiling himself. Now, defiling, it means more than simply just being unclean or spoiled, right? It had everything to do with fidelity to God, loyalty to Yahweh. God told the Israelites that they were to live according to his ways, not like the other nations around them, and that this was for their good. This was for Israel's flourishing, and that by trusting him through obedience and his ways, this would mean that they would be set apart, right, from the other nations, that they would be a holy nation. 
That's what it means to be holy, to be set apart. And that this would cause them actually to be a light to those living around them, those who were living in the darkness of their own futile thinking. So to defile oneself means to become corrupt. It means to abandon trusting in God and give in to just becoming like those who live around us. But it's curious, isn't it, of all of the ways that these guys are being assimilated into the ways of Babylon, why does Daniel choose this area of his diet to be the moral and theological line which he will not step over, right? What does he hope to accomplish by this? We might think that this defilement has everything to do with him keeping the kosher food laws that you might be familiar with from the book of Leviticus. Perhaps it does. Although wine was never something that God's people were forbidden to consume. (laughs) That was was awesome. Yeah. Come on now, I'm losing my track of thought here. Yeah. So it could have, it, you know, like maybe it's the kosher food laws, but they, they weren't forbidden from drinking wine. And besides that, everything in Babylon would have been considered unclean, right? It would have been ritually unclean, including the vegetables, right? Theologian Joyce Baldwin, she really helped me out with this by giving us the understanding that by Eastern standards, to share a meal with someone was to commit oneself to friendship. It was like making a covenant with that person. And so by eating the food from the king's table, it was like committing the sign of allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar, like you're accepting an obligation of loyalty to the king. But by silently refusing the food, Daniel is refusing this relationship in his own heart and mind and soul. He is rejecting the symbol of dependence on the king because he wished to be free to fulfill his primary obligation to the God he served, Daniel is resolved to stay faithful. But he can't do this on his own, can he? He's not allowed. He is not free to pick and choose what he eats. Neither are my children at home, right? He is captive to permission of somebody else. So verse 8 says he asks the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way, and that God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord, the king, who is assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would have my head because of you. You see, the chief is fearful because if Nebuchadnezzar inquires why Daniel doesn't look as healthy as the other captives, he certainly would have interpreted Daniel's motives in refusing this food as treasonous. And if he found out that the chief official permitted it, this would have been seen as being complicit in this conspiracy, and he also would have suffered a death sentence. Though Daniel doesn't get permission from this official, we should not overlook that God, it says in verse 9, that God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. There is God's sovereignty at work again. If this official wasn't sympathetic towards Daniel, he certainly would have had him punished for suggesting even taking this course of action. 
certainly he would have kept a closer eye on him from that moment on. I believe it was the official's favor towards Daniel that, brought, that was brought about by God that kept Daniel safe, but also enabled Daniel to try another avenue. Verse 11 says he then approached the guard whom the chief official had appointed over them with this plan to test them and his friends for 10 days, giving them only vegetables to eat, after which he should compare them with the others who ate the king's food. And as we know, the story tells us that after the 10 days, they appear healthier and better nourished so that the guard gave them vegetables to eat for the remainder of those three years. And what we should take from this is that we should all become vegetarians. <laughs> this is why this spring we are publishing our very own Calvary Vegan Cookbook. It's gonna be fantastic. You can submit your recipes to the church office. I tried Dave Barker's I Can't Believe It's Not Fish and Chips, and I gotta tell you, <laughs> they are to die for. Rather, what we should take from this is that these four young men they were so resolved to be faithful to God that they were willing to put their faith to the test. They were willing to put their faith to, te to the test. It's not that they were testing God in some sort of arrogant way. Rather, they were entrusting themselves to his provision, to his sovereignty over their lives. And if they didn't pass this test, well, then they would figure out what to do next when that time would come. But at this moment, they were responding to God's faithfulness to them with a step of faith of their own. And that is what we need to do as well. When we are faced with difficult or compromising situations, then we need to be resolved and step out in faith. We can't and won't always know what the right next move is, right? And we can't always be assured that everything will turn out as we plan. But like these young men, we can also trust that God is sovereign, that he has placed us where we are for a purpose, and that he will equip us to be faithful in it, and ultimately, that he will also deliver us from it one day. God's sovereignty enables faithful living. God does equip them, this passage says. It implies that these four young men's health is accredited to their loyalty to Yahweh. And along with the good health, verse 17 says, to these young men, God gave them knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. And after three years, they finally appear before Nebuchadnezzar. And verse 20 says, in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. Again, theologian Tremper Longman, he makes an important distinction for us here. He says that the comparison to the Babylonian wisdom isn't in degree, but it's a matter of kind. It's not that Daniel and his friends, they're ten times better in understanding Babylonian literature but that Babylonian wise men are not so much as incompetent, but as false in the wisdom they claim to have. Verse 17 says, it doesn't say that they excelled in their Babylonian education like they were 10 times better than the rest of the class, though they might have been. It says that to these four young men, God gave them knowledge and understanding. 
It's like extracurricular learning that they received. If knowledge and understanding that comes from God is what sets them apart from the Babylonian magicians and enchanters, what sets us apart? We would do well to obtain knowledge in all kinds of areas too, whether it's academics, finances, politics, the latest social trends. We need Christians who are well-versed in all of these areas in order to be influencers for Christ where we live, but also to help us to navigate these areas faithfully. But crucial to faithful living for Jesus is the understanding that comes from him and his word. Jesus says in Matthew 7, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain came down, the stream rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Friends, it needs to be the wisdom of God, the words and the life of Christ in us that others see in us that sets us apart. Just a few verses earlier from this little parable Jesus says in Matthew 7, Jesus says to the crowd, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks find and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. So if you desire the wisdom of God, if you want the life of Christ in you in order to be set apart and enable you to live faithfully amid the pressures of this world, then all we need to do is come before him and to ask. He is faithful to give it to us. We just trust him like Daniel did. But like Daniel, Jesus says that we also need to resolve to put his words into practice, that his sovereignty enables us to live faithfully. So what do we do with a passage like this? How do we live in light of it? First, I think like Daniel, we also need to be resolved to live faithfully for Christ and not just succumb to the surrounding culture. And this is going to take wisdom. It's not black and white. Like, where is the line of compromise? Sometimes it, it's not obvious for all of us, and we can, we can disagree where that is. For some reason, Daniel and his friends, they had no problem accepting Babylonian jobs, Babylonian education, even Babylonian names, yet they felt accepting the king's food involved a compromise of faith that they weren't willing to accept. And then other believers in other contexts and cultures, they might have identified the sticking point to be elsewhere, right? So we not only need God's wisdom, but we need a lot of grace for one another too, don't we? Where one believer feels they are compromising their faith, another might not, and where it's unclear, then we need to hold things lightly and to withhold judgment from one another. For example, in this passage, Daniel and his friends, they don't make Babylonian education the point of compromise. But for many Christian parents today, we have different views on educating our children. 
Some opt for private Christian schools. Others keep their children home and homeschool them. And then there are others who send their children to public school. And each set of Christian parents, they have various reasons for doing so. They love their children. They desire to honor God and to raise their their children to be resilient disciples of Christ. But many times when other people have found out that I, a pastor, send my children to public school, I get a comment like, you sure are brave. (laughs) Like I'm sending them as sheep among the wolves or as lambs to the slaughter. Like I am careless about my children's spiritual well-being. And I'm certain that parents of private school kids or homeschool children have also received careless comments that can sting as well. We need grace for one another, friends. We also need the wisdom of God in order to live faithfully for him. Next, we need to be resolved to find our primary identity in Jesus. Just like the Babylonians took away these young men's names and tried to replace their Jewish identity with new ones, this world we live in is also a false identity-making machine. It is trying to continually to sell us the myth that we can create ourselves, that we can define who we are by purchasing the right product or hanging out with the right people, looking the right way, or adopting the latest trending attitudes and beliefs. But the Bible says that what is to set you and I apart is that our identity is primarily in Christ. Daniel and his friends were set apart not because they had 10 times the number of followers on Instagram, but because of what they received from God, his wisdom and understanding. Pastor Mark Sayers says that to be resilient disciples of Jesus, we need to find our primary identity in Jesus, and this means three things. First, it means living lives of prayer. Living lives of prayer. And this means having intimate, conversational, conversational relationship with Jesus. Regular, intimate conversations with Jesus. Second, he says... It means allowing Jesus to be the central organizing principle in our lives. That means that there is no area of our lives that are off limits to Jesus. Whether it's deciding where we're going to work or what education we're going to receive, what our hobbies are going to be, how we're going to spend our money, Jesus is central and a part of the conversation in all of these things in our lives. He is the central organizing principle in our lives. And finally, it means that we are also to be resolved to being transformed into his image. That we make becoming Christ-like in our character one of our prime objectives in our lives. And this means saying yes to the things we know that Jesus would want us to say yes to, but it also means saying no to those things that we know are compromises. But I think most importantly from this passage today is that we need to remember and hold firm in our thoughts that regardless of where we find ourselves, whatever difficult situation that you are facing, that God is sovereign and that we can trust him that he will use our difficult circumstances for both his good purposes and for our well-being and that he will equip us to live faithfully 
and that one day he promises to deliver us from our troubles.